The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. We had our sixth grandbaby born to us yesterday, a little boy. Uh, yeah. Uh, not a little boy, a big boy. His name is Ivor Geary, and uh, he was nine pounds, ten ounces. So, big baby boy. Pray for my poor daughter-in-law who had him naturally. So, our son survived. He said he's okay. Uh, tough on guys, you know how that is. I mean, it's just tough. First Corinthians chapter fifteen. Christ is resurrected. Because he's resurrected, we celebrate him, we honor him, we glorify him. This day, Amen. It's a day that changed everything. It's a day where everything changed. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to take a glimpse into your word, to see the power of the resurrection, the change that the resurrection brought about. And now we pray that you teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Changes everything. Resurrection changes everything. Everything is changed by the resurrection. The day the disciples, the day the women went to the tomb of Christ and found it empty, their lives changed forevermore. None of their lives changed, but because of that empty tomb, your life has changed and my life has changed. Because of what's taken place on that day, it's a day that changed everything. It's a day that changed it all. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, everything has been changed. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. I'm just going to share with you some evidence of the resurrection. We've done that before. And as we look at those evidence real quickly, then we're going to say, well, look at what exactly it is that has changed. The resurrection is the cornerstone of Christianity. It's the cornerstone of Christianity. It sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. If Jesus Christ is indeed resurrected, then his claims are true. What he said about himself are true, and therefore Christianity stands apart from everything else. Paul says this himself in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been resurrected, your faith is in vain. Your faith is futile, your faith is empty, and you are still dead in your sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. The resurrection is the hinge, the cornerstone, the crux, the very issue of Christianity. If Christ is still in a grave, we're wasting our time here. Our faith is in vain, and we are still in our sins. But if Christ is resurrected, everything has changed. It's all changed. We, we see as we look at some of the evidences of the resurrection that Christ himself claimed that he would be resurrected. He, he said that himself in, first, in Matthew chapter 17, and then in Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew 17, when they came together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man, referring to himself, will be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. On the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. They didn't fully understand the coming resurrection, but they, Christ declared that one day he would indeed be resurrected. Then in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus was going to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside. He said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles and be mocked, flogged, and crucified. But on the third day, he will be what? Raised to new life. And so we see that the resurrection is the cornerstone of Christianity. We see that Christ himself claimed that one day he would indeed be resurrected. Then when we look at the events and things surrounding the resurrection, we see that there are many evidences of the truth, the veracity of the resurrection itself. There are many things we could talk about. I've listed for you. I think we ran out of handouts, but uh, if you had them in your hand, you could see these. There are about eight of them we're going to list. Events surrounding the resurrection. First thing is the burial of Christ. The first thing we have to confirm is that Christ was indeed buried. 
You say, yeah, well, if he was dead, he was. Well, there are some that say he actually didn't die. There are also some that say, well, in, in the midst of everything that happened, the disciples were in such an emotional state that even though Christ was buried, the disciples and his followers went to the wrong tomb. Now, if you remember, Christ was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He was very buried in a very specific place, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea. He was buried in a tomb that was owned by him. If anybody knew where Christ was buried, Joseph would know Nicodemus who helped bury him, the ladies who would wind their way to the tomb in a few days. And so what we find is that Christ was not beamed up like in Star Trek. His body was not snatched, taken away, burned, or destroyed, but his body was physically buried in a location in Jerusalem that could be found becomes very important in the story of Christ, very important in the evidences of the resurrection. And so what we find is that indeed they knew where the body of Christ was. I mean, it's pretty far-fetched to think that the disciples would not remember where they buried Christ. We have all buried loved ones. We've either buried husbands, wives, sons, daughters, mothers, fathers, close friends, relatives. Do you remember where you buried them? I mean, it's an absurd question, isn't it? Of course you do. Imagine that you had spent three years with the one who you deemed as the savior of the world, who held your eternal future, deemed him as the Messiah. Do you think you would forget the tomb that he was buried in? I mean, it's an absurd assumption that some liberal scholars make, and they would say, well, they just forgot, or in their emotional state, they, they lapsed and didn't go to the right tomb. They went to a tomb that was certainly empty, but it was not the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea where Jesus was. That's just gas grasping for straws. Another event that surrounded the resurrection was a seal. The tomb of Christ had been sealed, we learned in the Gospels. A seal represented the authority and power of the Roman Empire. Typically would happen, the thing that was sealed more than anything else were letters or official documents. Official documents, the insignia of the Roman Empire from usually a ring of somebody in authority would be placed in hot wax. It would be placed on that envelope, on that scroll, on that document. And basically what was being taught, what was being said was, unless this seal is broken by someone in proper authority, then you will receive the consequences for your behavior. The tomb of Christ was sealed. More than likely a wire, a string was placed across it, and perhaps there was a wax insignia on both sides where the stone would be rolled into place. But the, the, the point of it is whenever a seal was made for any document, any letter, any scroll, for a tomb, which is the only one we read about, when that happened, a person who did not have the authority to break into it would suffer consequences. From Roman history, we can read about some of the consequences of breaking a seal when you didn't have proper authority. It it could be any number of things. Ultimately, one of the punishments was crucifixion upside down. And and so they took pretty seriously the violation and and the breaking of a seal when you didn't have proper authority. Not only that, but they put a guard around the tomb. One author says, never had a criminal been given so much attention after his execution. Never had a crucified man had the honor of being guarded by a squad of soldiers. I mean, you don't typically guard tombs. We have the tomb of the unknown soldier in Washington, D.C. It's a tomb that's guarded. It's a marvelous thing to, to go and see. You, you, you become, it's just a, a time of recognizing what our nation, those who made the sacrifice for us. It's a time of great patriotism. But it's one of the only tombs that I know of that's guarded 24-7, 365, or guarded at all. It's rare for that to happen. And so you have the fact that Christ was buried in a specific tomb. You have the fact that there's a seal in place. And then you have the issue of the move stone. 
you have the issue of the Muson. In Mark chapter 16, it, it talks about the ladies who were going to the garden tomb where Christ was. And in Mark chapter 16, it says, On that day, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, brought spices to anoint the body of Jesus. It was early on the first day of the week. They came to the tomb. While they were going, they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? You see, one of the problems is, is that this was not a rock, it was not a pebble, it was not a small, small boulder, but this was, it was something like you might see here. It, they weren't necessarily round in shape, having been to Israel seven times, several times, and you see many different tombs, but a large rock, and there are several Greek words that could be used. The word that's used here is the word for a boulder. In fact, Mark himself clarifies that when he says in the next verse, verse 4, it says, They looked up, the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And so what you see in Mark's gospel is that the women are headed to the tomb, and their question at the end of this, this PowerPoint is, who will roll the stone away for us? Their concern, their worry is, how are we going to move this huge stone when it's just three or four of us women? How can we accomplish that? How can we do it? In fact, I've shared with you many times that one of the books on my library is called Who Moved the Stone? It's written by a guy named Frank Morrison. Morrison was an English attorney, a trial lawyer, a barrister in England. He decided if he could disprove the resurrection, he could disprove Christianity, which is true. So he took a year out of his law practice, went to Jerusalem to live and do research. Towards the end of his time in Jerusalem, in the 11th month he was there, he got on on his knees next to his hotel bed, and he accepted Christ as a Savior. He wrote a book subsequently, Who Moved the Stone? The first chapter of the book is the book that refused to be written. He could not come to grips with how that stone was moved except it was miraculously done in Christ as who he said he was. Then you have the evidence of the empty tomb. The evidence of the empty tomb. As the disciples and the ladies came to the place where Christ was buried, they came to a tomb that was empty. Let me remind you that the beginning of Christianity was in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem you had Jews who lived there, Romans who ruled over them. As the church began to grow, as, as the church began, people began to be saved and follow after Christ, after his death, burial, ascension, resurrection, ascension, what we find is the Jews hated Christianity, the Romans hated Christianity. The Jews couldn't stand Christianity because many of their people were following on the day of Pentecost. Several thousand people are saved. We're studying the book of Acts here at TBC on Sunday mornings, and we see that, that the, the Jewish people could not stand the fact that many of their devotees were now devoted themselves to Christ as Savior. The Romans couldn't stand it because now people are declaring there's a new king in town, and that new king is Caesar, that is Jesus, not Caesar. And so what we find is this great conflict. Both the Jews and Romans would love to end Christianity. Both the Jews and Romans would love to bring it to its end. They would love, to, love for it to come to its demise. I, I love what one author says. Take a look at the vacated tomb. Did you know the opponents of Christ never once challenged its vacancy? Isn't that interesting? No, nobody ever said the tomb is not empty. You can't find it historically or biblically. No Pharisee, no Roman soldier ever led a contingent back to the tomb and declared the angel was wrong, here's the body, it's all a rumor. In fact, they would, have, they would have, if they could have, within weeks, disciples occupied every Jerusalem street corner. They announced a risen Savior. What quicker way for the enemies of the church to shut them up than to produce a cold and lifeless body? If they could do that, Christianity is over. It's deemed as a hoax and not as history. Display the cadaver. Christianity is stillborn, but they had no cadaver to display 
uh, helps us explain the Jerusalem revival. When the apostles argued for the empty tomb, the people looked to the Pharisees for rebuttal, but they had none to give. As A.M. Fairburn, scholar from long ago, put it, the silence of the Jews is as eloquent as a speech of the Christians. You're in the streets of Jerusalem. All you have to do is produce a cold, lifeless body, and Christianity is over. So when you begin to look at the mounting evidences surrounding the resurrection, what you see is the burial, the broken seal, the moved stone, the empty tomb, and then you have the AWOL Roman guard. This is a crackerjack group of men, special forces tied. They're given the, the, the responsibility of guarding the tomb of Christ. Scriptures say there was a violent earthquake. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white. The guards were afraid of him. You bet they were. You bet they were. And they shook, and they became like what? Dead men. They became like dead men. Someone has said this. Conditions have changed since Friday. On Friday, the crucifixion was marked by darkness, silent angels, and mocking soldiers. But three days later at the empty tomb, the soldiers are the ones who are silent. The angels are the ones that speak. And light erupts like Vesuvius. The one who is dead is said to be alive, and the soldiers who are alive look as if they're dead. Everything's changed. It's a day that changed everything. Then you have the grave clothes in John chapter 20. The specific word that's used there says that the clothes are rolled up. If you were one who came and snatched the body of Jesus, which some said the disciples did, the disciples all of a sudden moved from being cowards to courageous. And so they snuck up at night while the guards were all asleep. They rolled back the stone, didn't wake up a single guard. That's a miracle in itself. And uh, then they stole the body of Jesus. But they just didn't run out with the body. They took time to take the clothes off, fold them up, and put them in a nice place. Right right the grave clothes a folding of the grave clothes another evidence of what christ has done then there's a post-resurrection appearances of christ see it's not just that they found an empty tomb they saw a risen savior paul writes in first corinthians 15 for i received what i passed on to you as first importance that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and he appeared to Cephas into the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. The early Christians did not believe in the resurrection because they could not find his dead body. They believed because they saw a risen Savior. They saw a risen Savior. A final evidence or event surrounding the resurrection that you have to look at is the changed lives of the disciples. They move from being cowards to being courageous to preaching the gospel in the streets of Jerusalem. Their lives were changed. Each of them would die a martyr's death. Then you just look around this room. Look at the changed lives of men and women. Look at what Christ has done in your life personally. Look what he's done in our lives. It's a further evidence of the resurrection of our Savior that changes everything. So when you look at the evidences, the conclusion that I make and many have made is that the resurrection is not a hoax, but it's history. It's something that's taken place, and therefore we have to respond to it, and it changed everything. I mean, it's a day that changed everything. That young couple, you think their lives changed? Nothing has changed more than the lives of those who've known Christ because of the power of his resurrection. So let me share with you three things that have changed. I could share with you dozens of things that have changed, just three this morning. Number one, the cross and the tomb are symbols of victory and not defeat. 
The cross and the tomb are symbols of victory and not defeat. Say, Gary, what do you mean? Well, think about it for a second. The cross in the first century was an instrument of torture and an instrument of death. The, the, the cross is something that everyone in that day looked upon. It was something they dreaded, something they feared, and something they wanted no part of. In fact, death on a cross was so horrific that Romans would not allow Roman citizens to be killed on a cross. Death by crucifixion was illegal for Romans. So they, 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 served, they saved the cross for enemies of the state and for slaves. It was the most horrific death. It, it, it was a terrible way to die. One of our men gave a lecture at Scott and White this past week, Scott Weeders, on the medical aspects of the death of Christ via crucifixion, and it's just a horrific way to die. And so what we see is that the cross was one of the worst symbols of torture that existed in that day, and it was avoided at all cost. But the resurrection changed that. You see, now the cross is a symbol of victory. The cross is not a symbol of defeat. How many of you ladies have a cross around your neck right now? Maybe earrings. How many of you have maybe on your ring or how many of you have crosses on the walls in your home? You see, we no longer see it as an instrument of torture and death, but now we see it as a symbol of victory and of life because the resurrection changed it all. See, our society is filled with many things that we, we see as signs of victory. If you watch any of the basketball games yesterday, the game's over, and you see guys jumping and hollering and screaming and high-fiving and hugging, and we see the sounds of victory everywhere. But the greatest victory that was ever achieved was achieved on a cross and through an empty tomb. Hands nailed, aside impaled. And now we see the cross not as a symbol of defeat, but we see it as a symbol of victory. And Christ is not on that cross anymore because now he's alive. The tomb, the cemetery, the graveyard. Prior to the resurrection, it was a place of hopelessness, a place of helplessness, a place of utter despair. It was the end of everything. But here's the reality. The place of death is really the beginning. It's the beginning of eternal life with our Savior. It's not the end, it's just the beginning. And so the graveyard, the cemetery, no longer has to be a place where there's no hope. It no longer has to be a place of despair because we recognize the resurrection has changed it all. I posted on Facebook and we posted on our website and I sent emails to a lot of you. Uh, Friday was a two-year anniversary of the date that I was diagnosed with this disease. And in that email I said, occasionally you'll see me shed a tear. And the tear is usually when I'm thinking about being separated from my family who are here. But then God gives me joy because there's a memory and a knowledge that one day, not only them, but those of us that name Christ will be together for all of eternity. And so the result of that is the tomb, the grave, is no longer a symbol of death, but it's a place of life. And so when we go to the cemetery, for those of us that know Christ, we see life and not death. Secondly, because of that, death has been conquered, so we don't have to fear it. Death has been conquered, 
If Jesus is alive and he rose from the dead, death has been conquered. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. You have your Bibles open to it, beginning in verse 55. The perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written is, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, where is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? I love that song we just sang. Forever. The stone has been rolled away. He's come alive and we sing hallelujah and death no longer has its sting. It no longer has a victory. We need not fear it. Because we know our future. And to fear death. When you know what the future holds, you don't have to fear it. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus. You see, if you know what the future holds, you don't have to fear the future. The Gaithers were a musical group back in the 60s and 70s. I guess some of them are still together. And uh, they, they wrote a song called Because He Lives. Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Because He Lives, All Fear Is Gone. Because I know who holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Because the Savior is alive. We don't have to fear death. In fact, we're guaranteed life. When you know the future, you don't have to fear the present. Francis Chan is an author and preacher and speaker. Does a marvelous job. He's out in California. And I was just surfing through the web looking at different guys and their preaching over Easter's past. And I ran across a sermon that he did. He does a marvelous job of talking about knowing the future should cause us not to have angst about death. And because of the resurrection, we need not fear. Watch this video. He does a much better job than I. How many of you have heard of a guy named Jack Bauer? Okay, a lot of you. CTU agent, counterterrorist unit. Um, he, uh, he's really saved our country many times. And um, it, it, this may help you if, if you see him. Okay. Now, a lot of things he does, okay, they're, they're top secret. So that's why maybe a lot of you don't know, okay? It's just confidential stuff, classified stuff. But uh, okay, it's, it's, a, it's, it's from the TV show 24. And uh, someone gave us a... They let us borrow season four of the show. And, oh, you got to watch this. So you start watching the show, you know, about this guy, Jack, and how he's just saving the world, saving America over and over. I didn't know we were in that much trouble. But, but man, I'm just so glad he lives here. But, but I'm watching season four, right? You know, and a lot of you guys are watching season five. But I, I'm watching season four, and, 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 and there was this one scene where, where these terrorists, they uh, kidnap our secretary of defense and, and his daughter. And, uh, and Jack finally finds their location right as they're about to execute. They're about to kill our Secretary of Defense on live television. And Jack goes, I found the location. He calls in CTU, asks for backup. But backup isn't coming for 20 minutes. He goes, that's too late. I'm going in alone. And I'm going, no way, Jack, don't do it. You don't get it. There's like 50 terrorists in there. You can't go by yourself. But he goes. He's going. He's going to save our country. He's going to save the Secretary of Defense. And he goes in. He's taking people out. And I'm going, you know, your heart starts pounding. Then I go, wait a second. This is season four. Season five's coming. He's still alive there. <laughs> in fact, in fact, he just signed a contract for three more seasons. 
So those of you guys that are watching now, guess what? He doesn't die. He's got six, seven, eight coming. And so every time, you know, we, we start watching these episodes, you know, when it got intense, I would just back off and go, okay, he doesn't really die. And, and the truth is, is you guys, that's, that's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ does for me. See, I get into life just like you do. And things happen to me, and I get all intense. The difference is I back off every once. I go, wait a second. It doesn't matter, because I don't really die in the end. No matter what happens in this life, it really doesn't matter. I just back off and go, you know what? Any moment now, I'm going to be in heaven with God forever for season five, six, eight billion, you know, 29 trillion, on and on and on and on. And it's not just the best feeling. It's like, gosh, whatever happens, I can just step back and go, wait, I know how this thing ends. And I know the way it's going to be forever. And so suddenly life just has this whole different look to it. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ should change the way you view everything on this earth. It's the greatest way to live. The resurrection guarantees our future. And if we know our future, why do we fear death? Some of you are scared to death of death. You're scared to death of death. It may be because you don't know Christ. Maybe because you know about him but don't know him personally. Or maybe you're scared to death of death because you don't really trust the fact of the resurrection. Christ has resurrected. Everything has changed. The cross and the empty grave are symbols of victory, not defeat. And we don't have to fear death because we know what the future holds. And finally, Paul says, the end of the chapter, he says in verse 38, he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The fact that Christ is resurrected, Paul says, we must always abound in the work of the Lord. Because of his resurrection, we can rejoice that beyond death is life. And therefore today, in the, in the, in the present, knowing our future, we are to be faithful. How can we not love, worship, serve, give to, honor our Savior who died for us, who rose for us, and assures us of his eternal life? So here's my question for you. Have you been changed by the resurrection? Not your neighbor, not your friend, not your mom, your dad, not your son or daughter, but have you been changed by the resurrection? Have you made Jesus Christ and accepted him and him alone for the forgiveness of your sins as a savior of your life. Have you done that? And if you have, if you have, how could you not worship him, serve him, love him, adore him, give to him, and honor him every day of your life? Paul says, therefore, abound in every good work for a savior. Worship team, would you gather with me? February 27th, 1991. It was the height of Desert Storm. Ruth Dillo was called from her sewing machine at the National Garment Company in a small town in Iowa. She was ushered into her boss's office. There was her husband, Cecil, and two men in military uniform, one an Army chaplain, the other an Army officer. I quote Ruth. She says, they didn't have to say anything to me. When you see this, you expect the worst, and you know the worst is about to be announced to you. And the worst is what we got. 
You see, the previous day, they were informed, Cecil and Ruth were informed that their son, Private First Class Clayton Carpenter, age 20, with the 1st Cav Division serving near Kuwaiti Front, had been killed in action. She said, my knees buckled, the room went black, and my life was over in many ways. She said, over the next three days, there was a stream of friends and neighbors that came by with flowers and cakes and casseroles and home-baked bread as we planned the funeral of our son. Down the street at the only store in our small town, at the general store, a wooden plaque was placed up in memory of our beloved Clayton. On the third day, as they were planning his funeral, the phone rang. Ruth picked it up, and she heard on the other end a voice that said, Hey, Mom, it's Clayton. She writes, I froze. I responded, This cannot be Clayton. My son Clayton was killed in action three days ago. This is an awful prank that you're playing. No, Mom, it's me. It's Clayton. I'm wounded, but I'm in a hospital in Saudi Arabia, and I'll be okay. I'm alive. I'm very much alive, still incredulous, not believing that it was really her son after three days of mourning his death. She said, if you're my son, what did I call you when you were a little boy? Clayton says, I quote, I panicked. For a moment, I couldn't remember what she called me. Then it came to me. She called me her little garbage disposal. I'd always had a voracious appetite, and she'd give me the nickname from the time I was a little boy. When I said those words, little garbage disposal, all I heard on the other end was a scream and a shirk, and then the phone dropping. And I could hear my mother screaming, he's alive! He's alive! My little boy, my son, is alive. Let me tell you something greater than that. There was a man who was dead for three days, but he's alive. He's risen from the dead, and he's alive. And he was dead because of you and me. And now, now he's alive. And we celebrate today, and we celebrate every day. And we live our lives centered around him. Because he too, he who was once dead, is now very much alive. Let's celebrate the risen Savior.